Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here, as always, to worship the true and the living God with you. Uh, and if you are new here and you don't know who I am, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here at Hollis Center Church and a member of the preaching team. Please be with us as we are still figuring some audio things out. Um, after I think something blew up, is that what happened? Something died and we had to replace it, so we're still honing that. So Steve was gracious enough to read through that huge passage of Scripture for us. And the reason being for that is getting into a prophetic book in the book of Joel. Um, the ideas cover a kind of a wide area, but when I'm going to buzz through and just cover highlights, I don't want the poetic and artistic nature of it to be lost because it's meant to elicit certain emotions as we hear it as a whole. And so I hope you were able to pick up on some of that as Steve went through it. I've entitled this message, Gracious and Merciful. We'll be in Joel chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 27. The scriptures will be on the screen. There are also black Bibles scattered around this room that are free for you to use and to take. And I apologize if I sniffle or cough. We, I just got over a cold, um, so please bear with me in that. Now, I do apologize for what I'm about to say. <clears throat> Probably isn't a good sign. Because if some of you are in this profession, you have my apologies. But I've generally been of the opinion that exterminators are a scam. The reason being is, you know, at our apartment, uh, we would tell our landlord, oh, you know, there's this problem or that problem. And the exterminators would just botch it every single time. We literally once told them, hey, there's squirrels in the attic. They go, cool, we'll send somebody over. The person shows up and we go, and we go hey, there's squirrels in the attic. They go, yeah, that's probably the, what's going on. But I can't do anything. I'm not licensed to trap squirrels. Okay, we called you to deal with the squirrels, and you say you're not licensed to trap. Who needs a license to trap squirrels? I trap squirrels all the time, and no one's ever asked me for a license. I got to have a hard trap and a five-gallon bucket of water, all right? And, and it works. So I've usually kind of been of this DIY mentality with pests. I'm usually just like, hey, I'm going to deal with it. I'll take care of it. I'm not going to get charged 600 bucks by someone to show up and say, I don't have a license to do what you're asking me to do. But my opinion kind of shifted because this past uh, year, about a year ago, I know a lot of you had the brown rats. Who had the brown rats? I know a bunch of people. So, okay, I've been hearing it a lot. I guess not everyone, but these brown rats like came out of Portland. They just invaded. And they, they were nasty little things. My parents had them. And I was like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, you can take care of it. I tried to shoot one of them in their front yard once with a revolver, and I missed. It was just like this whole debacle. But the thing is, the rat problem got worse and worse and worse and worse. And they had like a colony under their front steps and like the ground was caving in. And eventually they called an exterminator. And you know what? It worked. Apparently exterminators actually do have expertise. Maybe you just have to call the right exterminator, not the one that we had at our apartment. You know, when you have a problem that is big enough, sometimes you need to call for help. When you have a problem that's big enough, Sometimes you need to call for help. And so today we're going to see that in a world of big consequences, there is a merciful God worth calling out to. And we live in a world just full of consequences of sin. We live in a broken world. And in that world full of consequences of our sin, there is a merciful God worth calling out to. So the prophet Joel, the book of Joel, this is a record uh, written by a prophet in the Old Testament, now it's interesting, we don't exactly know the date of the book. It doesn't say, you know, in the reign of King so-and-so, uh, but it probably was after the exile, right? So 
Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, they had this relationship with God where he gave them a special land. And there were, there were restrictions, I guess you could say, where, hey, if you live my way, you follow my commandments, you will be blessed in the land. It will go well for you. If you stay in relationship with me, it will go well for you in the land. But if you follow other idols and you walk away from my ways, there are going to be consequences, right? And other nations are going to come in and they're going to raid you. And eventually, uh, the kingdom of Judah, after the nation split, they actually got taken into exile. And then they came back, got to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. And it seems to be in the period after that, that's when the book of Joel was written. And he was a prophet. He had this special responsibility from God to speak to the people and to call the people to repent, call the people back to following their creator and their God. And there are a lot of allusions in this book to previous prophets We aren't really going to get into all of that, but a theme we see in the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, this is a a general term. It's used 24 times in the Bible, 19 in the Old Testament prophets, 5 in the New Testament. It just generally means a time when God intervenes and confronts evil. The day of the Lord is a time when God intervenes, when God steps up and he finally deals with evil, right? Where God exercises judgment on evil, uh, sometimes involving him rescuing his people. Now for us as Christians, right, we are looking forward to an ultimate day of the Lord. At the end, we're looking forward to an ultimate judgment, an ultimate resurrection, an ultimate uh, day uh, where God saves his people and steps up, right? But there are multiple times throughout the Bible where God has had a day of judgment, a day of the Lord to confront evil. A day when God makes things right. That could be even your more simple definition of the day of the Lord. The day when God makes things right. And so the question we see in the Bible when the day of the Lord comes up is which side are you on? Because the day of the Lord is either a really good day or it's a really bad day. Right? Because if you are seeking to honor your creator and walk in his ways, you're like, yeah, it's finally time for God to deal with the people who are his enemies. But very often we as human beings find ourselves in the category of enemies of God's. And so that's the question we find in the scriptures, right? When the day of the Lord comes, when God finally, his patience finally comes to a point and he exercises judgment when he punishes evil, which side are you on? So we're going to get into that a bit. But in the first section, in Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, I've entitled this section, Bad Bugs. Bad Bugs. And so as you just heard it um, from Steve, it says that a disaster had taken place. And Joel is speaking to the people. He says, hey, you need to tell your descendants. You need to make sure no one forgets how awful this disaster was. Now, what was this disaster? Well, we see uh, in verse 4 that it was locusts, right? These old grasshoppery kind of bugs that come in, and they just ate absolutely everything. Okay, and this is a massive economic disaster. Okay, this is not just like, okay, the deer ate your tomato plants, you know, you'll you'll just plant them for them next year. I I don't think even deer eat tomato plants, but they eat pretty much everything else. Uh, No, this is a total economic disaster for this culture because they have just stripped everything bare. And guess what? This This is not fantasy, okay? Locusts are a real thing. In fact, in 1874, in the Great Plains, here in America, the Rocky Mountain locusts, I didn't even know those those were a thing, the Rocky Mountain locusts came down and they covered 2 million square miles. 
in the Midwest, in, in, in the U.S. and Canada. Two million square miles. They caused millions in damage, which was a lot of money back then. And they could block out the sun for six hours. So for any of you who think mosquitoes are bad, okay, these bugs blocked out the sun for six hours. Praise the Lord, these bugs are extinct. The Rocky Mountain locust is dead. The, the environment changed a bit, and they were unable to breed, and they are gone. Praise the Lord. They are extinct, but they're still a problem in other parts of the world. There are different breeds of locusts that are around. And this is a big deal for this culture, right? Because in Deuteronomy 28, 11 through 13, God had promised them that he would prosper, they would prosper their crops if they would follow him. Right? So this is the exact opposite of This is a big sign, right? That you have walked away. They have, they, have, they have departed from following their creator. And now the opposite of that blessing is taking place and that their crops have been destroyed. And so Joel calls the people to mourn like a bride whose husband dies. Verse 8. And he calls the drunkards to, to mourn because the wine is gone in verse 5. And the priests are mourning because there's no longer grain to be offered as a sacrifice in the temple. And of course, the farmers are mourning as well. We see that in verse 11. And so the section moves to a call to repentance in chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. A call to repentance. And so in verses 13 and 14, Joel calls out the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he says, hey, you guys, need to, you, need, you guys need to lead. You need to step up. You need to call the people together, call everyone together, and fast and mourn, lament before God. Cry out to the Lord. And in verse 15, this is where the passage really takes a turn for the worse, because it says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and the destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Wait a second. Okay, these people have just experienced this disaster of the locusts coming in and eating absolutely everything. Their livelihood, their granaries, it's all gone. The trees have been stripped bare. And then the prophet Joel goes, yeah, the day of the Lord, it's near, it's coming. What, you're saying this isn't the day of the Lord? No, Joel's saying, guess what? There's actually a worse judgment coming. This is just the beginning Okay, that's not, that's not good news, right? Like if you had just lived through the Great Depression, and they said, guess what? The Great, Great Depression is coming. Okay, you wouldn't be too happy about that. That would be concerning. In verse 19, even Joel joins the people in going before the Lord. It says, to you, O Lord, I call. To you, O Lord, I call. So then in chapter 2, we're going to see the same structure of chapter 1 mirrored and copied. In chapter 2, there's this really cool you know, poetic artistic element in that the prophet uses the language of the locusts. He uses this imagery of the bugs, but he starts weaving in other elements that make it seem like it's an army. Because the next judgment coming, it ain't bugs, but it's an army that's coming to destroy. And so this future judgment we see, I guess kind of just a quick note, a quick little Bible tidbit is in the Bible, judgment language is almost always extreme, full of images, full of emotion, and beyond the literal. Like that very often in the Bible, uh, it, this cosmic, insane language is used to describe any event where God's judgment is being exercised. We see this, if you want kind of some homework, those of you that are like, I don't really know about that, go to Psalm 18. Because in Psalm 18, all this crazy language about like the bottom of the ocean being laid bare, all this crazy cosmic language 
is used to describe an event that we have in Scripture where none of that crazy stuff happened. It was just a battle. But it was a battle that the writer saw God's hand in, and so he uses this crazy, dramatic language to describe it. And we're going to see that in this chapter as well. And you already heard it. The locusts morph into armies, and they begin to devour the land. And in verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And we see this again at the end in verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great, and he who execute his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? These people just experienced everything being destroyed by these locusts. And he says, guess what? God is coming and he's bringing an army. That is a terrifying word. And so just like in the first bit, right, there was description of the judgment and then a call. Hey, we need to get on our knees before the Lord. We need to cry out to the Lord for he is merciful. We see this again starting in verse 12. 12 and 13, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Man, is that, is that not a beautiful description of the Lord? Joel tells these people, hey, return to the Lord with all of your hearts. He's calling not just for outward displays of, of religious, hey, I'm sorry, you know, the tearing of the clothes and the getting on the knees, but he's saying, no, God wants your hearts. He wants you right here. He wants you to actually be devoted to him, to actually love him and, and be pursuing him with your hearts. And the description of God we see here calls back to Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where Moses, right, just after the, the people, when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God, and they were down in the valley, and they had built an idol, and they had this big rowdy party around this idol, right? And then God begins to judge the people for their misbehavior, for their sin, for their rebellion, right? Moses intercedes. Moses goes between the people and God, and he advocates that they would be spared. And that's when God reveals himself to Moses with these words. The Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Right here, we, we see you know, this, this theme of God's character, that God is both fully just. He has to punish evil, but he's also loving, and he's merciful, and he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, that God is able to hold perfectly two things that we as people often find at attention and are unable to hold that balance in our own lives, right? <laughs> is that we just get filled with anger, and we just want to wipe people off. We just want people gone, and we have a hard time loving people. Or on the other, on the other side, um, we, really, we really, you know, have our hearts um, in a place where we're compassionate for people, but we struggle to maybe provide punishments. We struggle to provide justice. 
And God is able to hold those two perfectly in his character. And so Joel is calling the people to gather, calling this religious leaders to gather everyone together to seek after the Lord, cry out to the Lord, and yes, to fast and to mourn and to have these outward signs as a reflection of what's actually in their hearts. And, and this is why, right here, this is why I, I wanted uh, Steve to read this whole section. And it seems like a lot of scripture to be going through in one sermon is because if we just ended on judgment, judgment, that wouldn't be really the message that Joel is trying to give us. Right? It was judgment, repent. Judgment, repent. All right, guys, have a great day. Well, no, that's not the end of the story. Starting in verse 18, we see God's merciful response. It says, and these are some of the best words you could hear in Scripture, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So in response to the people turning to the Lord and saying, hey, we have messed up. We have sinned against you. We are, we are broken over our sin. We want to have a relationship with you again. God relents. He relents on the judgment that he said might be coming. Excuse me. And so in the verses to follow, it's describing how God is going to restore to them the things that are lost. He's going to put away their enemies. He's going to restore the crops that were taken from them. And in verses 26 and 27, he says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none, there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Here here God is is saying, look, I am going to take that shame away. All the shame of this disaster that has come on you, it is going to be gone. I'm going to fully restore you as my people. And there are two things that, that I really want you to hone in on in these two verses. In verse 26, it's the word wondrously. And if you're one of the people who likes to write in your Bible, I would even circle that wondrously. And then in the next verse, um, in verse 27, in the midst, right? In, those, in that, that word and that phrase, we find the ideal for God's people. The ideal for God's people is that God would be in their midst, that God's people would experience the presence of their creator, that he would be close to them, right? That was, that was the whole point of having a tabernacle and then a temple, is that God's presence would be in the midst, in the center of his people. And we know, as we go throughout the Old Testament, that it didn't really always work out that way, that the people still rebelled. They walked after other gods, and they went far from their God, and he would draw them back. And then they would experience his presence again, and they would see wondrous works. They would see God work powerfully. It's the ideal for God's people that he would be in their midst, and they would see him do amazing things. That word wondrously refer, it refers to the miraculous. It refers to things that really can't be done, but God does them. Difficult things that God is able to do. And this is an idea that is going to be actually developed more next week. So come back next week 
And you'll see that ideal is developed in a prophecy of the future that we actually get to experience as Christians. It's super exciting. There's a reason that we are studying the book of Joel for three weeks before we jump into the book of Acts. There's a real reason for that. And some of you know what I'm talking about. But to get back to the main point, in a world of big consequences, there is a merciful God worth calling out to. That there were bugs, and then there was a promise that, hey, if you guys continue on this path, that there are armies that are coming due to your rebellion, and the people had a repentance, that they turned from their sin into God, and God relented and began to bless his people. That's what we see in this section. Now, we as people, we are not unfamiliar with the concept of someone being both judge and savior, but there really is not a perfect example. Okay, so these are not perfect examples. But one example that at least kind of lets us wrap our heads around the idea a little bit is police, right? All of you just had mixed reactions when I used that word, right? Oh, yeah, you don't want to answer that question. But, you know, if, you, if your sticker is out on your car and you see a state trooper, what's the reaction right here in this part of your body? You, you aren't excited to see him. You aren't. You just aren't, right? Because we know that law enforcement are, are part of how um, justice is presented. Now, that doesn't happen perfectly in this world, yada, 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 right? But it's the role of someone who's in law enforcement to provide justice, to punish evil, to uphold the law. And very often we find ourselves, well, maybe not very often, hopefully not very often, but sometimes we find ourselves on the side of the law where we need to be punished, okay? Most of us have gotten speeding tickets. And yet... If you are in a dangerous situation, if you're in a a situation where there are criminals that are trying to harm you, trying to take something from you, you are very excited when the police show up, right? Because their job is to punish evil and their job is also to save those who are being attacked by evildoers, right? That there's kind of two sides to this and that with law enforcement, uh, they are here to punish uh, evil, they're here to punish evil and uphold the law and they're also there to save you. And this is kind of what we see in God's character, right? That he is the one who upholds justice, but he's also the one who mercifully relents and saves his people. Another good example, our parents. I think this is an even clearer example, but it gets messier, right? Because none of our parents are perfect. Uh, and, and I know a lot of you have probably had even, even worse examples in your parents than, than some. But a good parent disciplines their child, but also loves them unconditionally, right? That a good parent is says, you know, you're going to get a spanking because it's for your good, but also doesn't punish out of retaliation and anger and frustration, but rather has that purposeful love for that kid, right? And, and none of us have experienced that in perfect measure, but we know that ideal, right? And that we can see that ideal in our creator. The issue though is that humans fall short. Like we just said, that we have bad examples, right? Whether it's law enforcement or parents, like, like no human being can be a perfect example of God's character. And we as human beings, we have the inability to maintain our relationship with God. We don't have it because our hearts are going a bazillion different directions, most of them away from our Creator. And we see this in Israel. That God's Old Testament people, Israel, God would bless them, he would provide for them, he would rescue them, and then they would slide into sin. They would begin worshiping idols. 
They would intermarry with pagan peoples and, and take on their practices, and then they'd start to experience the consequences of their sin, and those blessings would dry up, and God would send prophets to tell them the truth, and eventually the people would repent, and they would turn back to God for a while, and they'd experience those blessings again, and that cycle went over and over and over and over and over. It's exhausting reading through the Old Testament. You're like, guys, why can't you get it? And yet, we kind of see that same pattern even in our own lives a little bit. And we've seen the consequences of sin. We've seen those, we see those consequences in our nation, right? When a culture decides to abandon God's word and pursue their own ways, it does not lead to human flourishing. We're watching it happen in Western culture right now, but we also see it in our families, and we even see it on an individual level. That there are consequences to our sin even now, and there are even more in eternity. But in every act of the story, in every act of the story in God's word, in all the exhaustion, all of the failure, it all points to a final and complete resolution to the issue. That's Jesus. In Joel, right, the, 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 as a consequence of their sin, their crops were devoured by locusts. And yet for us as Christians... Rather than us ourselves be devoured by our own sin and the consequence of our sin, Jesus was devoured for us. Right? The God himself came down in human form. He suffered and died on the cross. His life was devoured so that ours doesn't have to be, so that we can have eternal life in him. Jesus was devoured. The Son of God was devoured by death, so that we don't have to be, and even death couldn't fully devour him. The temptation for us as Christians is to view the gospel as a commonplace transaction. It's so easy. We were talking about this morning, right, that you grow up in church, and you just hear the gospel over and over and over again, and it just becomes nothing, like you just tune out. But Jesus is the cornerstone. And this is why I think it's going to be so cool for us to study the next two weeks of what the book of Joel has for us, is Jesus is the cornerstone. He is that one piece that once that piece is in place, it makes it possible for so much else to happen in God's plan. So much else to happen in God's plan. Once that one piece is in the structure, everything else is held up. Because the message of Christianity, the message of Christianity is not just hey, you're a sinner, Jesus died for you, and now you can go to heaven, the end. That isn't the message of Christianity, though that is often what it is boiled down to. The reality is that our God is actually making all things right. He is rebuilding the Garden of Eden. And because of Jesus, we can experience the wondrous presence of God in this life. We're going to talk about that next week. And then the Sunday after, we are going to see God's plan to make everything right in the end. There's an end game. There's a new heavens and a new earth. There is more coming. God will one day fully bring judgment on the nations that have rebelled against him and fully provide a new city for his people. Once again, I'm getting off track. There's a lot of good stuff in here. In a world of big consequences, there's a merciful God worth calling out to. That's what we see in this passage. These people, I mean, they're at the end of the rope. 
They had sinned and sinned and rebelled and rebelled and they'd experienced some judgment and more judgment was coming. And yet they cry out to God and he shows them mercy and actually blesses them. That's the character of God. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 tells us that God is rich in mercy and we can know this because of the great love that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. And yet we see God's mercy throughout the whole Bible. It's not a new thing added in the New Testament. And so the call for everyone in this room, the call for every single person in this room, is for us to call out to God with sorrow over our sin and repent. This this word repentance means to turn from and turn to. To turn from our own ways and turn to the living God. And this is for the believer and the unbeliever. It just looks a little bit different. Uh, Repentance is not attempting to be good enough to get something from God. That's often kind of what we think in our own minds. But rather, it's a turn showing that we are committed to a relationship with God that only God can secure for us. Only God can secure for us. We see in the book of Joel, God's people were at the end of their rope, right? Everything was laid bare. Would they be able to flourish without the mercy of God? No. The land was a mess. They They were in a hole that only God could get them out of. And that's the same way it is for us in our sins. Only God can forgive us of our sins. Only he can provide the blessings that we cannot get for ourselves. Only he can provide the relationship with him that we continually fail to uphold. Repentance is not religious performance, but rather committed change for the relationship only God can secure for us. There's a big difference from saying, I'm going to turn away from my sin because if I turn away from it, maybe God will like me more. And rather saying, look at all the riches I have received in Christ Jesus. I want to live for him. Those are two very different things. Two very different things. Repentance is not religious performance, but rather committed change for the relationship only God can secure for us. Without God's mercy, we can't approach him, and yet he gives us so much. And so if you aren't a Christian, you know, my encouragement to you would be to come talk to me, talk to Steve, and ask questions about who Jesus is. And to take that first step of putting your trust in Jesus, that, that, that first step of saying, yes, I want to trust Jesus with my soul, with my life. I am a sinner. There's no way I can escape God's judgment, but yet I believe that Jesus has provided a way for me to have relationship with him, and it's free. And, and then what follows that, right, is a life of more and more giving more over to Jesus, turning from our ways and turning to his ways, right? And that's the battle that so many of us are in. For so many of us that are Christians in the room, right, it's that battle of, of of walking away from these patterns we have in our lives and these moments where we become distracted by other things and then turning from that and turning back to the God who loves us, who wants to show us mercy. Confession is is a big part of this, right? Confessing our sins to God, confessing our sins to one another. And and this is tough, right? We want to be afraid of being religious, We want to be afraid of being people that have all these displays of Christianity, but there's nothing going on in our hearts. There's just a little marble rolling around in there. We want to be afraid of that, and yet, getting on our knees, weeping, fasting, these are all very biblical ways to express what's going on in our hearts. To have true 
sorrow over our sin and to call out to the God who is merciful. And that, that's kind of, kind of the process we have as Christians, to confess our sins, to demonstrate sorrow, and then dwell on the complete riches of Christ, to dwell on what Christ has already done for us, to dwell on what he has done, and then rejoice in the relationship we have. Like That is the rhythm of the Christian life. That as sinners, as people who mess up, we go, Lord, I have sinned against you, I have sorrow over this sin. I know that it hurts you. It hurts me. There are horrible consequences of it. It harms the people around me. I hate it. But I know that you have provided forgiveness for me. You have given me a new way of life. And so now I can rejoice in what you have given to me. Something I don't deserve, but yet I get freely. In a world of big consequences, there's a merciful God worth calling out to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we earn, but it's something that you, as our merciful creator, you have provided through your own sacrifice. I pray that this church would be a place of repentance where each and every one of us would, would turn away from our sins, would turn away from our rebellion, and would come back to a right relationship with you. But I know that there, there are people in this room who right now are, are struggling with a destructive sin. There's a sin that has snuck into their life and it's harming them. There are substance abuse issues. There are pornography addictions. There's, there's lying and gossiping that is, that is destroying families. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would lead people to confess those sins and turn away from those today and turn back to you and find that you are merciful and that you provide us all things for life and godliness. May you be glorified in this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray.